Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Christopher Lane will join us to discuss the DSM. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, better known as the DSM, has become essentially the Bible for diagnosing psychiatric conditions. Yet, some of the conditions that are listed in the DSM are not without controversy, in part owing perhaps to how the manual itself was assembled. Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Professor Christopher Lane. Professor Lane is the Pierce Miller Research Professor of Literature at Northwestern University, whose work has been supported by the British Academy, the Mellon Foundation, and the Guggenheim Foundation. Author of numerous journal articles and books, his most recent work, Shyness, How Normal Behavior Became a Sickness, explores this for a general audience and is now available in paperback. Uh, Professor Lane, thank you very much for joining us today on the oh, Rock Science Show. Thanks for having me on. Oh, well, certainly our pleasure, and I think this is a really, certainly very fascinating book, one that I think a lot of people would be interested in, but maybe first you can explain what exactly is the DSM. Yeah, the DSM is, as you said, this major reference guide for mental diagnoses. It's jokingly referred to as the Bible of mental health because it's basically invoked chapter and verse by the school system, the prisons, the courts, right across the mental health professions, and indeed by the insurance companies who are looking for codes and diagnoses in order to consider whether to reimburse for prescriptions. So it's incredibly influential, not just in this country, but actually right around the world. And so when there are minor changes to the manual, even just sort of the the inclusion of a new symptom or so on, it can have dramatic ripple effects on mental health diagnoses. What I discovered was that in 1980, they added 112 new mental disorders to the third edition. It was a revolutionary, almost watershed edition. And among them were these very questionable new disorders, such as social phobia, avoidant personality disorder, intermittent explosive disorder, and so on, that really, to my mind, raised serious flags about why they were there. What was the justification? And so that led me to the archive at the American Psychiatric Association, where I was able to read what had happened behind the scenes and try and piece together the story. And it was both fascinating and a little bit hair-raising, <laughs> because I got to see often what was a very flimsy rationale for proceeding. And really, how were these mental diseases characterized and defined? Well, they initially defined social phobia, if you can believe it, fear of eating alone in a restaurant, concern about hand trembling as you're writing a check, and avoidance of public restrooms. That's all in the third edition. And what they did seven years later was lower the bar even further, if that's possible, by including this incredible sentence, anticipated fear that one may do something or act in a way that will be humiliating or embarrassing. Close quote. I mean, simply anticipating the fear could be enough. 
And then, you know, by the time they got to the fourth edition in 1994, they were including public speaking anxiety, concerns about dealing with authority figures, even fear of going to parties and dating anxiety. I mean, it's so broad and all-encompassing that the cutoff point between serious mental illness and normal behavior just became impossible to establish. Really, how was the difference between what was classified as normal behavior and mental behavior, if any, actually established? Well, what they tried to do was distinguish between them in 1994. They were, I, I guess they were sufficiently alarmed by the inclusion of all of these new behaviors that they realized they were basically talking about shyness. <laughs> I mean, that, that, and 50% of any given group or population thinks of itself, defines itself as shy. So they were really moving from a very narrow definition a really chronic impairing anxiety that may affect uh, less than 1% of the population, according to most of the psychiatrists I interviewed for the book. What they have been saying in published documents is that almost one in five of the population, one in five Americans, could have this disorder. And so what occurred was a sort of massive second-guessing game, in large part sponsored by the drug companies who put up over $92 million in the year 2000 to promote the disorder for which their drug Paxil would then be the appropriate remedy. And that's exactly how it took place. And the FDA gave them a license in 1997 for treatment of the anxiety disorder. And thereafter, it became a blockbuster drug, in large part because it was being prescribed to over 18.5 million Americans. I mean, it's just an astonishing number of Americans have taken Paxil for social anxiety disorder. And when you go back and look at the history of the disorder and the rationale, the justification for including it, it's actually really flimsy. I mean, worryingly so. There was really just one academic document in recognition of social anxiety. And the authors of that in 1966 said this should not be classified separately. It's basically an aspect of anxiety. And at the time, the DSM only defined anxiety as anxiety neurosis. This was part of the problem the new task force wanted to break up that term, actually wanted to eliminate the idea of neurosis and bring in the biological emphasis on disorder. And so what we have was seven anxiety disorders suddenly replaced them. You know, when I asked Robert Spitzer, for instance, who had chaired the task force, well, how did you come up with this? You know, what was the, what was the rationale? He said, well, first, we had panic disorder because Upjohn Pharmaceutical Company had sponsored a conference for us and they wanted Xanax approved for that disorder. So we included that, and then we went to obsessive-compulsive disorder, which is relatively easy to define. And then you got to things far looser, like agoraphobia, post-traumatic stress disorder, and, and then even more con controversial, like a social phobia and generalized anxiety disorder. And the latter was defined basically as everything that couldn't fit in elsewhere. I mean, that was how imprecise it was. In order to sell the drug, first you have to sell the disease. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And so they, they did this very expensive promotional campaign, very slick, run by a Madison Avenue um, PR firm, Conan Wolf, that works with Visa and Hilton Hotels and so on. They spent $3 million more that year than was spent on Viagra. And those Viagra ads were everywhere, I'm sure you can remember. So it gives one a sense of just the scale of the money but that was peanuts compared to the revenue that they made from 
convincing people, I guess, to ask their doctors whether their shyness was something more serious. Because that's kind of the order of the ads. I mean, that's what they were pushing people to do. And really, how was it that psychiatrists and psychologists who were involved in constructing the DSM allowed this to happen? Well, that's a very complex uh, scenario, and I, I think there are a number of different factors here. The first is obviously they're under enormous pressure from the drug companies to come up with findings that support the research that they're given. There is a kind of problem of biting the hand that feeds, as it were, when the drug companies sponsor so much of the research in the universities around their product. If the results are negative, so often those trials just simply end up in someone's filing cabinet. They're never published. And so publication record in the medical and psychiatric journals for the efficacy of these drugs is greatly distorted. I mean, they found out by more than 80% in some cases with drugs like Zoloft. So that's the first thing. The second is that I think there's a huge prestige factor for the psychiatrists in getting their pet diagnosis listed in the DSM. And a lot of this was going on in the written correspondence that I was able to review, where there was so much jockeying and pressure on peers and, and sort of horse trading. Well, if, you know, if I prove this clause, you know, will you allow that to go in and so on for me? And that's, in effect, what happened. That's, that's how one can account for this extraordinary explosion in the number of mental disorders on the books. I mean, basically, in 26 years, the total number of mental disorders virtually doubled. That's, that's something you don't see anywhere else in the history of medicine. It's just a phenomenal increase. And since then, been strong efforts to consolidate that work, you know, adding a few more disorders than they're debating now, apathy and whether overuse of the internet and whether extreme shopping and something they're calling relational disorder and so on, whether these are possible disorders for inclusion in 2012 with the next edition, DSM-5. But basically what they've done is issue series of statements saying the DSM just gets better and better with each edition. And you know, we, we may have made a couple of mistakes with DSM-3, and we've tweaked them, and we've sort of, you know, finessed the problem, and it's gone away, and what we're dealing with now is hard science. But actually, the DSM kind of gets worse with each edition because it becomes more inclusive. And so it's very hard for the psychiatrists and the physicians to present a meaningful cutoff point, particularly if you think about it when you're still dealing with symptoms like fear of eating alone in a restaurant, fear of public speaking. I mean, who doesn't at times fall into that kind of category? And so it, it's such a fuzzy area that it's, it is closer to junk science than something really seriously driven by pristine neuroscience, as they would prefer to have us believe. So have a lot of the recent developments in neurosciences then started to inform diagnoses that are in the DSM? Well, I would say so. I mean, one of the arguments for the inclusion of apathy is that the SSRI medication leads people to, they become more apathetic on the drug. And so what they've, what the, I mean, this is just completely incorrect in terms of science, but they've seriously talked about pathologizing then the side effects of the antidepressants as a way of listing that problem in the DSM, rather than saying, you know what, maybe we need to have fewer people on medication. Maybe medication should be the point of last resort rather than first. And maybe the problem is with the, the medication itself, like Paxil, that has really a litany of side effects, some of them really quite serious. They've been updating the health manual 
from uh, GlaxoSmithKline, adding things like you know, risk of stroke, risk of renal failure, blood clotting problems, risk of birth defects and so on. I mean, really serious. And then going into risk of suicide or obsession with suicide, hence the black box warnings that were added by the FDA against pediatric use. And yet the drug companies continue to try to get that market. They're sponsoring a trial in Japan right now for children between 7 and 17 to see whether Paxil is good for public speaking anxiety. And those are seven-year-olds, you know, a lower age. It's just it, completely inappropriate. It's just the wrong way of thinking about what an antidepressant should be for. A lot of people probably have the impression that perhaps America is becoming more and more over-medicated. Isn't yeah. there some kind of backlash to this pushing of drugs? I think there is. I think there is that there's a great deal of anger among the public who feel that the record of these drugs and the disorders for which they're supposed to be treated has been very much hyped. So the drugs are made to seem more effective by the media and by the medical literature than in fact they are. And the problems are hyped and exaggerated to such an extent that we've said in some of the literature to be facing an epidemic of shyness. I mean, this is what they'll talk about. Do we realize we have an epidemic of dysfunctional children who are just too introverted to be able to cope with the world? And everything is so over-dramatized that you get, as it were, a bit of a, an apparent justification for moving toward medication when it seems like the right thing to do. The problem is that discussion never involves really a serious accounting of the side effects, nor does it really focus on what we don't know about these drugs, which is that there are so many unknown unknowns that you could begin to think about what the risk of emotionally blunting an entire generation would amount to. What would the long-term effects of SSRI use be when we're, we're just now beginning to establish what the short-term effects are and have a really serious discussion about that? I think the backlash has moved toward an emphasis on cognitive behavioral therapy as an additional remedy alongside antidepressant use. And I'm, I'm all for that for very localized fears and problems when people need only a few sessions to acclimate to a certain fear condition or anxiety condition. Cognitive behavioral therapy can be extremely useful, but I think for longer term issues where patients simply don't know what the problem is that they're experiencing something far more deep-seated and existential. I don't think cognitive behavioral therapy has really any real way of addressing those problems. And that's the terrain, again, of talk therapy and psychotherapy and, and even psychoanalysis. But it's to do with accepting that the mind is infinitely more complicated than our present discussions of the brain. We have to think about consciousness and perception and cognition, as well as questions of serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine in the brain. Well, certainly there's the tendency for the uh, quick-fix pill to solve all the problems, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, one can understand, one can appreciate how tempting it was for the media in the 90s to represent Prozac in particular as a kind of catch-all solution for our remedies. And, the, you know, you cast your mind back to some of those cover stories in Newsweek and Time, they were really over the top. I mean, they were talking about sort of personality sculpting and imagining that one could simply adapt one's brain as if it were pharmacological plastic surgery. That's, that's what they were talking about. And it gave the impression of these drugs being incredibly precise and the science behind them very sure and confident and reliable. 
But there's been so much guesswork and so much covered over in the process that I find that pretty, pretty scandalous, actually. You mentioned that the new version of the DSM is coming out yes. soon. Is there any hope for that to become a little bit more specific? Well, they seem to be pulled in two different directions, I would say, based on what I'm, what I'm seeing so far. On the one hand, the American Psychiatric Association has required consultants to sign a contract pledging total secrecy over the work in progress. So they're not allowed to share drafts beyond their committees or allow the public to have any sense of the process before, presumably, these new disorders will be simply announced as bona fide illnesses in 2012. And for some of us, that's, ex- that's a cause of extreme concern, particularly when you've seen how they've operated in the past. The idea of them being allowed to work in total secrecy is, is quite disturbing. <laughs> if suddenly we hear overuse of the internet is an official mental disorder, as they've editorialized in the American Journal of Psychiatry, perhaps 20% of patients require hospitalization. I mean, that's <laughs> That's what they've been describing. So that makes me really worried. On the other hand, people like David Kupfer at the University of Pittsburgh, who is co-chair of the task force, recently told the Chicago Tribune that he does hope to reduce the number of disorders in the next edition. And that's great. I guess the problem there is that it raises a fascinating sort of legal medical question as to suddenly things like social anxiety disorder and avoidant personality disorder are going to be deleted, as I would recommend. What happens to the 18 and a half million Americans who've taken medication for it? Do they, do they just accept, oh, okay, um, that was unnecessary, I guess, and probably borne all of these side effects and so on for no reason? I think that's the kind of scenario that could spark litigation. And there has been quite extensive litigation against the APA in the past. I think there's a risk of that occurring, even though I think it would be absolutely a step in the right direction. What they have to do is raise the bar, frankly, on these disorders. I mean, they have to make the cutoff point far higher so that fewer and fewer people fall into the nets, as it were. And we're simply back to treating the chronically impaired, which is what this was always intended for. Well, we are running slightly out of time, but I'm just curious to have some final words on uh, the whole issue of the DSM. Well, fundamentally, I think the amount of hard science that has gone into it was radically overstated, that the process was far more haphazard and capricious than perhaps we realized, and that a book like mine can document what happened behind the scenes. It's actually quite embarrassing for the APA, but I think it's necessary for the public to know and to be able to sort of participate in those, to follow those discussions about mental health, because otherwise those decisions are going to be made by people who have a massive conflict of interest with the drug companies that sponsor their work. Well, that is certainly true. Uh, The new book, by the way, is uh, Shyness, How Normal Behavior Became a Sickness. Professor Lane, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And you were just listening to Professor Christopher Lane discussing the DSM. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
Alright, we're ready to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. This is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Normal or Pathological. And so for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if diagnose them as Normal or Pathological and uh, maybe a little reason why. Professor Lane, you ready to play the game? Okay, let's go. Alright, here we go. Person number one, Normal or Pathological, Donald Trump. Oh, no. uh, I gotta give a quick response, right? I would say fairly pathological at times. <laughs> Not for um, strong clinical reasons, <laughs> just simply because of basic behavior. Right. Seems a little megalomaniacal there. Yes. Yeah, a little narcissistic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number two is Dr. Phil. Oh, boy. Pretty much normal, but he's made a hell of a lot of mistakes. <laughs> but big, big ego there, too. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Uh, number three is former uh, Microsoft chairman Bill Gates. Yeah, pretty normal. Um, very brilliant guy. And clearly extraordinarily talented and driven and ambitious, but that, that's all within the purview of normal. Uh, number four is the famed golfer Tiger Woods. Yeah, absolutely so. Very gifted, very talented guy, and um, no monomania there whatsoever. It's just pure ambition, which is great. <laughs> all right, and finally, number five, it's the new president of the United States, Barack Obama. Absolutely normal, <laughs> for what I can tell, and I hope it stays that way. I mean, um, again, it, you know, formidably talented, a fantastic mind and intellect, and someone with the humility to be able to see the deficiencies in their own thinking. I think that's an incredibly healthy change for our culture and our country, and I'm really, really excited about his presidency. Uh, Curiosity is a good thing. Indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, Professor Lane, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing the game. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's really been a pleasure. Again, your, your new book is uh, Shyness, How Normal Behavior Became a Sickness. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok's, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.